Just King Things is a podcast where we read the books of Stephen King in publication order. As these are largely horror novels, they often deal with complicated and disturbing topics. A list of content warnings is available in the episode description. Howdy, friends and neighbors, and welcome back to Just King Things, the show where we read through and talk about the books of Stephen King in publication order. I'm Michael, and with me, as usual, is Cameron. Michael. Uh-huh? Look over there. Do you see it? Wow, that sure is some construction equipment. Yeah, they're building a road over there. Let's look at it together. Okay, let's continue. I'm, I'm looking. I'm seeing We're looking lots. at it. Uh huh. I do it every day. Uh huh. Just looking at road work. Road work. And scene. <laughs> <laughs> We're talking about road work. Yep that's that's the that's the pitch for this book. <laughs> Is that it is, in fact, about what the title is, which is Roadwork. Uh, 1981, this is the third novel that Stephen King publishes as Richard Bachman through the New American Library, which, of course, has published all of the Bachman books up to this point. Um, And it's a weird one in a couple Mm -hmm. of ways. Uh, Do you have any sort of thoughts that you want to say at the top about it before I kind of get into the, the history of this thing and how it came to be? It's a really weird question, but is it a uh, is this a paperback first? Yeah, all of the Bachman books would have been paperback mm-hmm. originals. Yeah, so I uh, you know I maybe I've said this I can't remember I think I might have said this in a bonus ode, but it, you know we've talked before about how the Bachman books are so expensive and it's difficult to get a copy of Rage and all that kind of stuff, and then I realized that like in a box in my closet I had a hardcover copy of the uh, of the Bachman books with rage in it that I bought for two dollars <laughs> it's literally written on the inside cover how much money I paid for it like whenever I bought this I have no idea when I did it um, but but it's pretty cool the reason I bring it up is it's pretty cool because it's got uh, the covers like printed in the book itself so I can like see what the original cover for uh, for all these books are oh that's nice and uh, yeah, it is. It's pretty cool. They're like in black and white, so you, you, can, mm-hmm. you don't get all of this stuff. But this one's got like a dude with a rifle, and there's like a bunch of road construction equipment, and there's also like a house with a bunch of cop cars around it, and it's got a little phrase in it, you know, like a little uh, like a log line. His life was in the path of the wrecking ball, but he wouldn't budge. Mm-hmm. So, so the cover itself is kind of set up as like a. Uh, a, a much more exciting novel. <laughs> There's nothing about that that's wrong informationally, but that is maybe not exactly what this book is about in the vast bulk of it. Yeah, it's got that kind of interesting uh, genre problem of Stephen King that we've observed a couple of times where there's like, there's a story there, right? You can imagine the story of the guy who's like something about some construction project is going to ruin his life. And now it's kind of this adventure story or kind of revenge story where he, uh, you know, takes charge and starts like uh, fighting back against city hall, literally and, and fighting the people who wronged him. Uh, but no, actually that's not how this story goes at all. He's just depressed for a long time. Yeah. It's about a man with depression. 
And uh, the one thing I'll say, first Stephen King book that's not a science fiction novel. <laughs> <laughs> really? Even when we talk about all the all the blasting caps and everything? Yeah, no, nothing. All that stuff's real. No. There's no extrapolation. Mm-hmm. And, and I'll be frank with you. I'm shocked that TK doesn't show up somewhere in this book. <laughs> but it really doesn't. Very grounded realism. Mm-hmm. Uh, a very, well, you say grounded, but it's also a weirdly ungrounded book because did did you notice where this takes place? Uh, somewhere, like <laughs> the town. Uh huh. Right? Does it ever say? So he's not very specific about it. Uh, but if you're paying attention to kind of certain things that get named, uh, you will realize that this book takes place in the Midwest, um, mm-hmm. specifically in Milwaukee. Oh, uh, like Milwaukee, Wisconsin, which I am not sure if King had ever been to because the location here has no flavor to it at all, which is very strange. I'm going to pitch something right now. You know, this is a King thing. Uh-huh. Now, this is before we've even gotten to our five sentence summary. Right. But but this is a, a general King rule. And maybe we should keep track of these for the you know when we inevitably finish this so we can obviously write our cash in book uh-huh uh you know where we like sum up everything we've learned about Stephen King and we have like our big rules uh-huh but i'm going to float one right here Stephen King only writes great novels about places that he's been yeah i think that's true right i think that and not even as a knock against him right i think that that is uh, a somehow right that is like a core part of his creative process however he yeah. apprehends a scene in a situation uh it it helps if it is literally a place that he has been that he can kind of call to memory yeah and obviously we're not going to get here for for a few books but you know the very famous story about the mist and i think the mist is probably if not one of the greatest king work, or if not the greatest king work, certainly in the top 10, like no question in my mind. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, that the very famous story about that is that he literally lived that experience, right? He like power went out. He had to go to the grocery store and mm-hmm. all this kind of stuff. And he was like, what if there was a big evil bird here? <laughs> <laughs> and then he was like, oh, my God, got to go home and write this down. Right. Yeah. Yeah. There's something to do with him and like sense memory and his capability to like take a real place and do something with it in his brain. Mm-hmm. Um, that's a big part of him as a writer. Yeah. Um, so just a little bit of background here on the novel kind of generally. Um, as as uh, Cameron mentioned, it's not science fiction, nor, the, nor is this a horror novel uh, in any particular sense of the word. It is uh, King self-consciously at the time that he, he wrote this. Um, so he writes this at about the same time that he is writing his first draft of the novel that is going to become Salem's Lot. And that's going to be interesting for something we'll touch on later. Uh, but he has Carrie already in the pipeline, right? This is kind of the uh, moment after Carrie has been sold. And he's kind of like, what's my next book going to be? And he's talked in interviews about feeling like, you know, people at parties, right? Asking him like, well, what's your like, you know, quote unquote, straight novel, right? Something that doesn't have all of the uh, weird stuff, all the supernatural things going on in it. Mm-hmm. Uh, all the kaiju at the end. Yes. The giant teen girl kaiju. <laughs> you got a novel in, in you that doesn't have a giant teen girl at the end? <laughs> uh, that would have been a much more interesting way for this book to have gone. Um, yeah. Absolutely. <laughs> like the only thing to fight a road is something bigger than a road. <laughs> a giant teen girl. Um, <laughs> uh so yeah he he king is he writes this novel um it 
comes to I'm, I'm not sure of like sort of specific like scenes or characters or instances and how they all kind of like you know lock in together um but a big influence on this novel and kind of how it turns out is the fact that we we touched upon this in uh the episode on night shift uh king's mother died of cancer um and it was a very difficult experience for him uh you know she raised him and his brother um as a single mother and, and that was very difficult for them and i think he greatly admired her for that uh and so she's gone uh and he kind of decides to process these feelings of grief uh, of having lost someone uh to to cancer uh through writing about the experience of someone who has had kind of a similar thing happen to them. And so that's one of the plots of this novel is that uh, the, the main character, a guy named uh, Dawes, uh, has lost his son to cancer several years before the novel begins. And that we'll, we'll talk about that sort of in more detail as as sort of we go through it. But the experience of uh, that and kind of his ensuing grief is one of the closest things to being like a driver for this novel as it gets. Uh, mm -hmm. The other thing um, that is, you know, sort of worth thinking about is what would Stephen King look like if this was his second novel? Because he brought both this and Salem's Lot to his agent. And he had him look at both and he was kind of like, you know, which one's which one's the next one? And as we know, Salem's Lot is the one that his agent picks uh, because he says that it's, uh, well, I'll just go ahead and read this. Uh, this is from... Because <laughs> he says that novel's good and this one's not. <laughs> <laughs> so this is from an interview from 2006 in the Paris Review uh, with King. Um, and the interviewer asks, <clears throat> uh, do you ever feel typed by your reputation? And King replies... If you mean, do I feel like I'm blocked in and I can't go any or I can't go where I want to go? Not at all. No, I never did a bit. Other people will hang tags on me like Horror Meister, the Schlockmeister, the Fearmeister, the Master of Suspense, the Master of Horror. But I've never said what it is that I do, and I don't write letters complaining about uh, these tags because then it sounds like I'm trying to put on airs and make myself sound like something I'm not. I remember having this conversation with Bill Thompson, my first editor at Doubleday. They had just published Carrie, which was a big success, and they wanted a follow-up book. I gave him two other books I had already written, Salem's Lot and Roadwork, which was later published under my pseudonym, Richard Bachman. I asked him which one he wanted to do first. He said, you're not going to like the answer. He said that Roadwork was a more honestly dealt novel. A novelist's novel, if you know what I mean, but that he wanted to do Salem's Lot because he thought it would have greater commercial success. But he said to me, you'll get typed. And I said, typed as what? He said, typed as a horror writer. I just laughed. I thought, what? Like M.R. James and Edgar Allan Poe and Mary Shelley? I said, I don't care. It's nothing to me. And that review or that interview has a couple of other interesting things in it about later books. So I'll hopefully remember to consult it when we get to them. But that's the bit about road work here. What do you think of that, Cameron? I mean, I think it's right. Um, mm -hmm. And and that thing also kind of uh, demonstrates the 
that Stephen King kind of inaugurates a new form of horror mm-hmm. in some ways, right? Because he's like, yeah, who would my contemporaries be? Oh, yes, Mary Shelley and M.R. James. Uh-huh. <laughs> right? Like, because there really aren't, right? You know, all the other kind of big 20th century horror writers that we think of, right, were either minimal beforehand um, or emerged with King, you mm-hmm. know, um, kind of in that same 1970s, 1980s era you know, uh, Clive Barker or Peter Straub or, um, uh, gosh, the other guy, uh, the dude who always has like magical dogs. Oh, Dean Koontz. Dean Koontz. There we go. Sorry. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I knew you'd be able to get it from that. Right. Yeah. Um, and, and you know, like Shirley Jackson, right. Uh, Who King is, is borrowing from slash ripping off (laughs) regularly, uh, (laughs) at this point, right. Is still a minimal writer. Certainly is not as nearly as celebrated as, as she has been, um, you know, kind of after the fact. So that makes a lot of sense to me. I think that calling this a more honestly dealt novel, quote unquote, is a very nice way of putting it. Um, you know, I think the way, and that certainly sounds like an editor talking to a writer. I have no doubt that that is definitely what what that person said. But I mean, to me, you know, and this maybe has something to do with our um, differential reactions to the novel. Because uh, I actually don't, I'm, I didn't mind it all that much, uh, to, to be honest, and we can talk about that in a minute. But um, I think the difference here is that this just feels like a novel written the, written in America in the 1970s. Like, it feels like a Vonnegut novel. It feels like a Philip Roth novel. It feels mm-hmm. like a Styron novel. And it feels like a John Updike novel, right? Like, all mm-hmm. these middle-class white dude feelings novels. Um, and like that are deeply at their core misogynistic and uh, and also deeply middle class and white, right? And I say those not to be like, oh, that's a generic category, but in a very serious way, right? They mm-hmm. come from the power position of those things and can only imagine the world as kind of a landscape for those things to be experienced. And so like thinking of it as part of a cohort, right? I'm like, okay, this is just kind of a middling version of these other novels and certainly is not, um, you know, if... I don't, I don't like reading John Updike, but I, you know, I can, when reading it, I can be like, oh yeah, this really does index a time period in the world. Mm-hmm. Um, and this certainly indexes a time period in the world. I would never read this novel again, I don't think, and certainly probably wouldn't have finished it if not for the, you know, doing the show. <laughs> but, uh, but you know, it just feels of a type. And I think Stephen King, something that we have realized i think or something i've come to is that he's kind of a master of pastiche i don't know if he's a horror meister you know i don't mm-hmm. think i would call him uh the the schlock meister the gore meister uh i don't know if i call him all those those things but i do think that he has a wildly combinatory brain mm-hmm. like the dude is very good at looking at things in the world and reading novels and then figuring out his own road into that mm-hmm perhaps working his own road into that oh oh and that's definitely what's happening here with road work right um yes and it's very funny too i really liked that in this book so many of the things i've said in the show were confirmed like uh when he specifically <laughs> calls out manhattan transfer by dos pasos i was like yes, yes. exactly uh-huh it's like that's what i've been saying this whole time uh-huh yep the uh, yeah the, the dos pasos i knew you would like that <laughs> because of that I was like, Yes, <laughs> but uh, but I also think that's probably what makes him a better horror and science fiction writer in some ways, right? Like, those are just more interesting to turn through the Stephen King brain than like white dude feelings, mm-hmm. the novel, um, which are which are fine, right? But like, there's a real limit. It's, there's a limit to that imaginary and what it can do, and it's very routine and uh, uh, um, 
and not exploratory enough of it, right? Mm -hmm. Like, I think I'd probably be more fine with, like, a White Dude Feelings novel if it was in any way interested in thinking critically about them, but it's not. It's just about interested in laying them out in front of you and then giving you a kind of, especially in the year 2021, um, deeply nihilistic ending. Like, yeah. In some ways worse than Rage in that regard. Mm -hmm. This book is an easier read in the sense of, like, um, I think it's less vile to read through but the ending is not the ending is functionally the same mm -hmm. yeah uh the thing that i thought ended up being pretty interesting about this something that that mick garris says actually pretty frequently uh whenever mm -hmm. he's talking about stephen king is that the, the the thing that makes stephen king distinctive is that he makes characters you know and characters uh you care about um which I think is is pretty true, right? King is, and this is a thing we've said, King is very good at getting you inside of a person's head. Um, mm -hmm. But the thing that this novel illustrated for me and kind of uh, the reason that I had a fairly strong negative reaction to it uh, is that for the most part, it turns out I don't want to be in a Stephen King character's head unless they are thinking about the supernatural entity that is hunting them. They have lots of, you know, good, relatable, like, uh, uh, specific color about, like, the world and where they are. That's great. Um, but when there's not a supernatural element for them to, I don't know, worry about or to kind of dominate their attention, uh, they just keep thinking like Stephen King characters, right? This book is made up of so much of Stephen King's stuff, like dialogue, characters talking about their feelings, reminiscing about things, talking about people they knew in high school, that sort of thing, um, it's it's you take out that you take out the monsters from a Stephen King novel and he just fills the the holes with more Stephen King stuff that's just not monsters. And yeah. uh, to quote uh, a friend of mine, I guess, friend of the show uh, spam, uh, this novel could have been a decent short story is the this meeting could have been an email of reading Stephen King. That's kind of my feeling like she, she has uh, very specifically put down like what my feelings are about this book. Yeah, no, I think that's I, I think the kind of uh, treading water nature of this book just makes it not it's just not interesting to read, you know, on a basic mecha mechanical level. And part of that, you know, you know, if you've read other Stephen King books and you didn't read this one for the show, that's fine. And I don't think I would say, hey, you need to go read this afterward. But it's kind of like, what if the the time period before Johnny has his accident in the dead zone? Mm -hmm. What if that just happened for 400 pages? Yeah. <laughs> like, and it's it's like perfectly whatever. You know what I mean? It is just Stephen King character thoughts, but just that's the whole book. Mm -hmm. Like, there's no, there's no, um, well, I guess there's a little bit of, of conflict in it. Should we give the summary so that we can kind of get into uh, the specifics of the thing? This is like the longest on-ramp we've ever had uh -huh. to we, a summary we, of we the really show. We really built this long on-ramp into the five-second summary. Five-second summary? Jesus. No, five-sentence summary. <laughs> it's a book about a road. The end. <laughs> uh, this um, one's you, Cameron. Yeah. <clears throat> this is, this is going to be an easy one. This is the easiest one yet. What's the dude's name? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> well, I have no idea. Dawes is yes. his last name? His name is, this will be important, his oh, name God, is George Barton Dawes. Yes. George Dawes. Freddy, mm -hmm. Charlie, whatever, all this stuff. Okay. <laughs> oh, I hate it. Uh, George Dawes is happily married, 
and has a son. Open parentheses in the past of the novel, close uh-huh. parentheses. <laughs> Period. His son dies of a walnut sized tumor that is untreatable. Mm-hmm. Period. A road is being built through a residential neighborhood in which Dawes lives. And he is forced to move. Open parentheses. Also, his job is forced to move at the laundry. Close parentheses, period. He blows his whole life up Uh because he basically has gone uh, mad with depression. Period. Mm -hmm. He gets into a bunch of hijinks and then blows up his house, literally. Mm Mm-hmm. Period. Mm-hmm. That's it. Yeah. That's, that's that's the whole thing. Yeah, it's uh that's like beginning to end. That's the plot. Like the first third is about him uh losing his job, basically. Like sort of him mm-hmm. not dealing with stuff he needs to be doing at work, losing his job. The middle bit is like after his wife leaves him and he's sort of uh, again, just spinning his wheels while the, the deadline for him to vacate his house before it gets demolished by the city ticks down. And uh, he, as you said, he goes on this like weird picaresque adventure where he just meets a bunch of people. Uh, and then one of these people uh, allows him to buy a bunch of explosives, which he then uses to blow up his house at the end. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, he does uh, like mescaline in the middle of the book uh-huh. just for fun. Mm-hmm. Very much to your point about this being like a novel of this time, of the idea of the of the straight laced middle aged man going to a party and dropping mescaline and uh, having all of these hallucinations and stuff because he's just so depressed. Like, just you know, it's very much a, a Roth Updike kind of thing. Absolutely right, and it just kind of follows that pattern. And I don't have any drive in my life to read a Philip Roth or a John Updike novel ever again. And that's kind of how I feel about this novel, right? Like, it just feels of its thing. And you're like, it, he meets, like, a young... He's in his 40s, something like that. Late 30s, early 40s. Mm-hmm. And he, like, meets, like, a 21-year-old girl uh-huh. who, like, changes his life. And they have sex one time, even though he doesn't really want to. But he really did want to. And, wow, it blows his mind. And, he, you know, he, like, he's trying to help her get into business school. Like... It's just by the numbers. I mean, it literally is like a like a fill in the blank nineteen seventies middle class novel. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, you you asked earlier what is the uh, what would Stephen King's career have been like if he wrote this in Steve, instead of Salem's Lot? And the answer is he would not have one. Yeah, um, because there are four four hundred thousand of these like very middling novels. This, it's just not you know. There's nothing special about this novel uh, in that regard. Um, but uh, there are some. <laughs> there there are some enjoyable characters in it um what is it magliori what's his name yeah magliori the uh the uh mobster who ends up selling him the the plastic explosives <laughs> yeah. or the dynamite or whatever it is i mean it's, I think it's whatever both. it's it's uh i think it's plastic explosives that are only explained in terms of the explosive power of dynamite <laughs> <laughs> Um, but, uh, but yeah, so like this road is being built, I mean, quite, quite literally, um, you know, over the course of these several months that the novel takes place in, 
we get all these like cast of characters coming through and all these different scenarios. Like you said, he loses his job. He he is supposed to he is supposed to secure a deal with a real estate agent to move a laundry that he works for to another place. Mm-hmm. And he just blows the deadline and doesn't do it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like on purpose. And it's it, I it is kind of a beautiful portrait of someone who is self-sabotaging. Yeah. But uh but but not not a good enough portrait in the sense that that he's like yeah, I'm doing this and I don't want to, but I'm also doing it. But then we never get like a deeper layer to it. He's just like, yeah, I guess I did that. Mm-hmm. I guess that's what happened. Um, you know, no real thoughts about it beyond that. I guess I'm leaning in. Yeah, that's that's really it, right? That's one of the things that does make this feel um, like, you know, th- this could have uh, legs as a story in, in some way, but it is really very much like, he feels bad because this laundry that he's worked at since literally he got out of high school. Um, because, you know, this is, again, the, the other sort of thing to to keep in mind about these novels in this time period is just sort of the the social change that is going on in the background, the sort of spiraling senses of despair and decay, like the war mm-hmm. in Vietnam, the gas shortages, the, all of that stuff is here. And so, yeah, the gas shortage is like all over every page of this novel. Yeah. Um, so, so Dawes is like, you know, he's, he's, uh, he has this like deeply individualized personal relationship with this laundry, which was started as a small business by people in the town. And now it's been purchased by a, a kind of like global chain or something or not global, but I think it's like a countrywide chain. And they also do, I think, laundromats or something. Mm -hmm, Um, yeah. And the he he's sort of the manager of this place and he's in charge of securing the facility that they're going to move to because the laundry is also going to be demolished for the the road extension that is going to also demolish his house. Um, And he knows he's supposed to, like, be filing this paperwork and meeting this guy to sign everything and he just doesn't do it. And he thinks like, oh, I don't want to do that because I don't like that guy. And instead, I'm going to reminisce about when we needed money for a TV or like we wanted money for a TV. So my wife took in a bunch of extra sewing and I like worked overtime and painted the the smokestack on the laundry or something. Uh, and that's, you know, those stories are interesting, but they actually don't really get us anything like in the moment of the story in terms of like what Dawes is thinking or kind of how his uh, how his self-sabotage is maybe getting at something bigger about what is going on in the country, maybe like if that's where you wanted to take this, if you wanted to take Dawes as kind of a a, a sort of like specimen of a moment in time, um, he's weirdly discon not disconnected from the stuff that's going on he's just angry about it yeah it's really weird to me that stephen king can so clearly see what the structure of this kind of novel is and like how you write it but doesn't understand the or or is not interested i I think he probably understands it but he's just not interested in like actually doing what all those other writers are doing which is that like for updike right like his character rabbit across all of those novels, right? He is this kind of raw symbol for the waning American man in the 1960s and 1970s. Mm-hmm. Right. Exactly. Like, it's got a bunch of politics associated with it. And it's, it's kind of deeply conservative um, in, in that way. But like, he is not, a, he's a character who serves a function and he's got a deep psychology, but the psychology is all in service to speaking to exactly as you're saying, right. It's like changing American condition 
you know, and the, this kind of waning power structure. But, like, Stephen King doesn't, he's not interested in doing that. So, weirdly enough, it's like a novel of, a mid-century novel of, like, American middle-classness that, that doesn't have an object, right? Mm-hmm. Like, it doesn't have a thing it is pointing to, right? It, I mean, I think more and more, as we're talking about this, you know, the idea that, like, Stephen King is just waiting for a ghost or a ghoul or a goblin to show up to like push this novel and he just never comes. And he's like, all right, well, I guess I'm going to write another scene about this guy drinking in front of the TV. I guess that's going to keep, keep us going <laughs> until, you know, until a plague shows up. Um, and, and so, you know, this maybe is also a place where Stephen King not outlining is really showing us some problems because mm-hmm. um, there's just no target. There's nowhere to go other than this awesome mobster character. Yes. Um, uh, where they talk about uh, computers. <laughs> uh-huh. Uh-huh. <laughs> Our next. Oh, man. I love it was so great reading this right after Firestarter and seeing the exact same attitude to computers show up in a novel that was written six years prior. <laughs> Yeah, it had to be edited, right? I mean, he had to have edited this into the into the novel. I, there, yeah, I guess. Like, it's weird. I don't know. I mean, maybe not. Maybe he didn't. But it feel it feels so much of, about him in like 1980 or 1979 being like, "Hell yeah, John Rainbird's using this computer, and also mobsters. Everyone is going to be able to use. If we can share time on a computer, who can't have access to a computer? That that does seem to be his thought exactly. That like he finds out that computers at this point operate on time sharing bases, and he's like, "Well, just anyone could be on the computer then." And use it to do anything. Yeah, this like this mobster. So he he goes and talks to this mobster initially. The, I think the novel the novel starts with him buying the guns, right? Yes, uh, it starts with him in a gun shop, like buying guns. And a thing that we should flag because otherwise it's going to come up and it'll make no sense. Uh, a lot of a, a lot of the parts of this book have uh, kind of Dawes's inner monologue, which is kind of a weird dialogue between two non-personalized characters who refer to each other as Fred and George. You know, like Harry Potter. <laughs> and also like the dark half. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I mean, kind of, right? Like, it's yeah. really weird. And and also, uh, uh, what, Secret Window, Secret Garden? Yeah. Right? Like, there's this... Stephen King has a real fa- fascination with, like the bifurcated mind but here he's like let's just have him talk to each other let's just see what's up uh-huh. <laughs> in in when you know when you can make someone uh have a you know but because uh you know to, to fill that in a little bit more before his child died they had this kind of like um i i don't know like um comedy routine you know yeah funny little little carry a bit that they did together and so after his child dies he just absorbs all that into his head and that's the kind of force of his like mental compulsion is this like weird, um, you know, dialectical choice making decision where he just like goes to to buy a gun and like is being compelled to do so by this, uh, I don't know, comedy routine running in his head. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So he does that. And then kind of after that, um, while he's totally beefing up this this laundry moving operation, <laughs> he goes and meets Magliori. Um, who is just like a funny, uh, uh, you know, mobster character. Like, there's no other reason for this guy to be in the novel other than Stephen King was like, yeah, I think I want to write a mobster guy. Uh-huh. He, he's great because it's just, uh, I mean, it's what we've talked about before with the, the Stephen King has a real 
ear and eye for stock characters. He knows exactly how to pull a character kind of out of the popular imagination and pop them down into the story. And that's what this guy is, is that if you if you wanted like a story where they, a mobster shows up like a mob boss, but he was kind of threatening, but also someone you kind of liked, like this is how you do it <laughs> because he's very funny. He's very jovial. Uh, and also, you know, he's a mob boss. Yeah, and like not he's not uh, too threatening. You know, you know, you mm-hmm. don't he's not a villain. He's never constructed as a villain. Mm-hmm. He's literally just like your friendly down the street mob boss mm-hmm. in Milwaukee. We all know. Um <laughs> and, and you know, he's also, you know, this like Italian stereotype, right? He's like eating uh-huh. pasta all yes. the time. He's like he's feeding, you know, Dawes. He's like, "Oh, come in. Let's let's eat it, you, you know, over uh, you know, let's eat it over like a nice meal." of of uh you know the sauce right like um it 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 really feels like Stephen King watched The Godfather and he was like hell uh-huh. yeah these dudes these dudes are cool as hell I'm getting them in here but what if he also loved computers <laughs> yeah so i mean just to give you an idea of how this scene kind of goes we're going to uh uh do some reading here uh we're going to skip some stuff in the middle probably because it's it's a long scene but uh just to give you a sense of, of how this works, how this goes, uh, Dawes has just gotten in to, to see Magliori, and uh, he's he's very nervous, but he, he, he knows he wants to buy some sort of explosive. At this point, the plan does not seem to be to blow up his house. What he actually wants to do and what he eventually will do is attack the, uh, the site where the road work is happening, right, the construction area. Um, mm-hmm. But anyway, uh, he gets into the office. Finally, Freddy said, that's his inner monologue. The man shows some sense. He walked over to the door in spite of Freddy, opened it, and stepped into the inner offices. There were two men. The one behind the desk was fat and wearing heavy glasses. The other was razor thin and dressed in a salmon in salmon peak sports coat that made him think of Vinny, who's some other character. Forget about him. He was bending over the desk. They were looking at a J.C. Whitney catalog. They looked up at him. Magliori smiled from behind his desk. The glasses made his eyes appear faded and enormous, like the yolks of poached eggs. Mr. Dawes? That's right. Glad you could drop by. Want to shut the door? Okay. He shut it. When he turned back, Magliori was no longer smiling. Neither was Mansi. That's the other guy. They were just looking at him, and the room temperature seemed to have gone down 20 degrees. Okay. Magliori said. What is this shit? I wanted to talk to you. I talk for free, but not to shitbirds like you. You call up Pete and you give him a line of crap about two Eldorados. He pronounced it Eldorados. You talk to me, mister. You tell me what your act is. Standing by the door, he said. I heard maybe you sold things. Yeah, that's right. Cars. I sell cars. No, he said. Other stuff. Stuff like... He looked around at the fake pine-paneled walls. God knew how many agencies were bugging this place. Just stuff. He finished, and the words came out on crutches. You mean stuff like dope and whores and off-track betting? Or did you want to buy a hitter to knock off your wife or your boss? Magliori saw him wince and laughed harshly. That's not too bad, mister. Not bad at all for a shitbird. That's the big, what if this place is bug at, bugged act, right? That's number one at the police academy. Am I right? Look, I'm not a- Shut up, Mansi said. 
He was holding the J.C. Whitney catalog in his hands. His fingernails were manicured. He had never seen manicured nails exactly like that, except on TV commercials where the announcer had to hold a bottle of aspirin or something. If Sal wanted you to talk, he'd tell you to talk. He blinked and shut his mouth. This was like a bad dream. You guys get dumber every day, Magliori said. That's all right. I like to deal with dummies. I'm used to dealing with dummies. I'm good at it. Now... Not that you don't know it, but this office is clean as a whistle. We wash it every week. I got a cigar box full of bugs back home. Contact mics, button mics, pressure mics, Sony tape recorders no bigger than your hand. They don't even try that much anymore. Now they send shitbirds like you. He heard himself say, I'm not a shitbird. An expression of exaggerated surprise spread across Magliori's face. He turned to Mancy. Did you hear that? He said he wasn't a shitbird. Yeah, I heard that, Mansi said. Does he look like a shitbird to you? Yeah, he does, Mansi said. Even talks like a shitbird, doesn't he? Yeah. So if you're not a shitbird, Magliori said, turning back to him, what are you? Um, he began, not sure of just what to say. What was he? Fred, where are you when I need you? Come on, come on, Magliori said. State police, city, IRS, FBI. He looked like prime FBI to you, Pete. Yeah, Pete said. Not even the city police would send out a shitbird like you, mister. You must be FBI or a private detective. Which is it? He began to feel angry. Throw him out, Pete, Magliori said, losing interest. Mancy started forward, still holding the J.C. Whitney catalog. You stupid dork! He suddenly yelled at Magliori. You probably see policemen under your bed, you're so stupid. You probably think they're homeschrewing your wife when you're not here. Magliori looked at him, magnified eyes widening. Mansi froze, a look of unbelief on his face. Dork? Magliori said, turning the word over in his mouth the way a carpenter will turn a tool he doesn't know over in his hands. Did he call me a dork? He was stunned by what he had said. I'll take him around back, Mansi said, starting forward again. Hold it, Magliori breathed. He looked at him with honest curiosity. Did you call me a dork? I'm not a cop, he said. I'm not a crook either. I'm just a guy that heard you sold some stuff to people who had money to buy it. Well, I've got the money. I didn't know you had to say the secret word or have a Captain Midnight decoder ring or all that silly shit. Yes, I called you a dork. <laughs> I'm sorry I did. <laughs> I'm sorry I did it if it will stop this man from beating me up. I'm... He wet his lips and could think of no way to continue. Magliori and Mansi were looking at him with fascination, as if he had just turned into a Greek marble statue before their very eyes. So, like, that is that's just... That's this whole book. That's yeah. the whole book. <laughs> that's everything. It's segments like that. <laughs> and I just, I love so much that, like, what... So what ends up happening is that the mob boss is, like, so sort of taken with the fact that he was called a dork that he kind of, he takes almost, like, this paternal interest in Dawes. And, like, later he warns him that the police are, like, surveilling him and stuff. Um, 
<laughs> but the interactions are just so bizarre and so strange. Uh, and yeah, the entire book is like this. It's it's Dawes meeting one character after another and just having bizarre conversations with them. Yeah, 100%. And some of those are, you know, like we were saying earlier, uh, some are uh, better than others. You know, I think... There are several parts of this this novel that are just like um, not just wheel spinning. Like so much of that conversation, right, is is pure wheel spinning. Like the plot is not moving in any way forward. And you know, uh, you know, Michael, your secondary character there, right, is just there to be like a yeah, boss, yeah, mm-hmm. tell him, boss. <laughs> uh, you know, like a, like a Disney character in some ways, right? Uh huh. Um, it, yeah, and it just like that's the, that's what's going on to the whole book, you know. And and some of that is just like way less savory uh, than the rest of it. Mm-hmm. Like some of it feels like um, like just stock character stuff, like what we're talking about there. But like you know, the twenty one year year old hitchhiker he meets, who he like takes home and like isn't going to have sex with, does have sex with, uh, has some of the like just worse self wish fulfillment stuff going on in it. You know, mm-hmm. we've already talked about, you know, all the different ways that like Stephen King writing women and particularly when he's writing sex feels really weird sometimes. Mm-hmm. Um, I will say that his wife, do you, do you remember her name? I don't remember anyone's name in this. Book oh, I was say Stephen Aguilari. King's wife. And I was like, you forgot Tabitha's name. No, I remember Tabitha's name. <laughs> uh, uh, his uh, wife, poet, I think... novelist Tabitha King. <laughs> uh, his wife, I think is named Mary. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, she is probably one of the better women in a Stephen King novel we've read so far. Um, and that could just be because he never tries to write from her perspective. And so the particular failings that King has there just aren't on display. Mm-hmm. But, you know, the whole kind of after after she leaves, right, he like messes up buying a new house and he gets fired. And she's like, look, I'm out of here. You've ruined my life. Mm-hmm. Um, and she leaves and like they only have a few conversations after that but it's very clear that she's like able to put it behind her and is about to like go and change her life she's like going to go back to college mm-hmm. and like all this stuff kind of you know post marriage and it's like one of the few upshot characters you mm-hmm. know uh, in in uh, or, or, uh, upshot kind of women that Stephen King writes where like she has a life and she is an independent character and it's very clear that like the negative stuff around her is all from um Dawes's perspective you know it's not this kind of universal narrator character going on mm-hmm. um i was really surprised by that it it worked a lot better for me than um than a lot of other stephen king women do yeah, I mean, I, I agree. And and sort of that said, there is also it puts an interesting pressure on the fact that the way this book ends. So you, you there aren't as many like Stephen King universal narrator moments here, but there's kind of one that begins the book and one that ends it. And the one that begins it is uh, a moment where a reporter for like a local news outfit is doing a man on the street interview segment. And he asks someone about like Vietnam, I think. And then the guy who he's talking to gives a really like angry, uh, uh, vindictive response. And of course, it turns out that that person is is Dawes. Mm-hmm. And then sort of the the big like one of the one of the the clocks that gets started there is that the narrator mentions that so many months later, these two men would meet again, but neither of them would recognize the other. And so when at the end of the novel, when Dawes has barricaded himself inside of his house with his guns and all of his explosives and uh, the police are there and the news crews are there, um, this is the news interviewer who ends up going in to interview him. Uh, And then after Dawes blows up the house and, and kills himself, 
we return to kind of that universal narrator talking about how this was covered in the news and sort of what the the fallout was kind of politically for the town and kind of what the national uh, kind of sense of it was. And uh, just to tell you how, you know, the, the book ends, uh, he talks about the, well, the narrator, I should say, describes the footage that gets shown of the house exploding and, uh, you know, sort of the, the moment of stillness afterward. Then the shocked, tear-streaming face of Mary Dawes fills the screen. She is looking with drugged and horrified bewilderment at the forest of microphones being thrust into her face, and we have been brought safely back to human things once more. Mm-hmm. So even if she does get kind of her her own story there in the background or kind of like her, her you know, upshot, um, the, the end of the novel is Dawes like slamming down on her life again. Right. Like just in this horrible way, it that means that she's going to have to answer to or like answer for him in some way for the rest of her life. Right. People are yeah. always going to be asking her about him. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it's like I said, you know, before, deeply nihilistic in that regard. Like, you know, Dawes Dawes, uh, takes everyone out and then takes her down with him in some ways. Mm -hmm. Um, And the novel's very, very clear about that. I mean, yeah, I mean, you've written in the notes here, uh, you know, taxi driver falling down, uh, you know, these kinds of things. Because ultimately, Mm -hmm. the the whole end here, it's a revenge story in some ways, right? Mm -hmm. They are... You know, the road is being built and is going to demolish his house. And, and the house is like the one location that he has remaining. Uh, or or the, the house stands in for his relationship with his dead child. I mean, I guess is what's mm-hmm. going on there, right? And so he can't get out of, out of that thing. And he can't bear to let the house go. And so it is better to kill people and kill himself, uh, you know, than to let the road take him. And it very much is this kind of like, you know, white nihilist story uh, mm-hmm. in that regard that has a lot of, you know, a deeply conservative overtones to it and um, is its own kind of political, um, you know, position at this point in the year of 2021, mm-hmm. um, you know, and has always been, I guess, you know, that's not in any way surprising, but, uh, you know, the, the, the white man who can't take it anymore is a figure yes. now. Um, certainly in 2021. And so very hard to read the end of this as anything other than a, I, I don't think it's, it's not an endorsement of this, right? But mm-hmm. the whole novel is this kind of progressive look into that mind of how someone might get there. Mm-hmm. And so I don't think it's in any way an endorsement, but I also think that it's like really weird for Stephen King to write his essay on guns and to like be so interested and concerned about the relationship between rage and school shootings and not recognize that he's basically performing the exact same maneuver mm-hmm. in this book, but just for people who are out of high school. Right. Um, it's the same logic of, you know, I thought I was getting one thing and I didn't get it. And so here I am, uh, you know, raining hell down on the world. Exactly. Yeah. And the additional thing, I guess, to to say there too, right, is that this novel is much like all the other 1970s uh, King novels, has a really weird relationship to race going on here too. Lots of characters throwing around the N-word and Mm -hmm. no one caring one way or the other about it. I think the vast majority of the characters, I can't think of a character who's not white in the novel. And there's also not any kind of critical thought about that. I was going to say there is one character who is not white. And uh, he has basically no characterization other than the fact that, like, Dawes looks at him and he's like, oh, that man's a pimp. 
Oh, really? I don't even remember that. Yeah, there's like a whole thing about, uh, like, because he goes to the quote-unquote wrong side of town, right? Uh, Yeah. Like, it's that, again, right, it's it's exactly of a piece with what you were just talking about, about, like, sort of the, the, the white man who is angry at the world and can't take it anymore, and, like, look at all of these other people who are living lives, and how dare they, and let's not think too hard about uh sort of some of the implications of what's going on here mm-hmm. and and about how the suburbs that i live in produce this exact situation if i don't like it uh-huh. um you know all that kind of stuff but anyway so i i say all that to say you know that that you know i've been um perhaps a little bit softer on the novel than than you have michael but also this has all of the same failings i think of of contemporary king at the moment i don't want to set anyone who's listening up for bad expectations here or incorrect expectations but Unrelated to that, you you made a little note about um, Kurt Vonnegut here. Do you want to you want to talk about this? Yeah. Uh, so King has said that Vonnegut was an influence on this novel. Vonnegut gets name checked along with Dos Passos, actually. Uh, specifically, the way that Vonnegut uses white space in his novels. And if you've mm-hmm. never read Kurt Vonnegut, um, first of all read Kurt Vonnegut uh, as a guide. Maybe go check out Grad School Vonnegut uh, with. Uh, Jerry and Aaron. Yeah, Jerry and Aaron. Um, grad school Vonnegut with Jerry and Aaron. It's a it's a similar uh, conceptual show to this where they were reading through the works of Kurt Vonnegut. Cameron uh, guested on an episode um, several mm-hmm. months back at this point. Yep. Um, but it, it's kind of similar. Anyway, that's there. That's that plug. Mm-hmm. Uh, but if you've yep. never read Vonnegut, one of the things that he does in his novels is uh, have kind of jaunty like line breaks. Uh, this is the only way I can think of really to describe it. It would be mo- much easier to point to something visual. Great to talk about books on a podcast. Uh, <laughs> like a thing that a character in a Vonnegut novel will do is he will have like, he will look at a candy bar. And when he reads the label on the candy bar, that label, instead of being in flush in with like the rest of the paragraph, will be broken off centered on like small caps on its own line and it'll have like the name of the candy bar and then you know another line break underneath that like whatever the candy bars you know trite little uh pitch line is right and the character will look at that and usually because it's vonnegut these are things that are uh somehow like they're they're always kind of like little pointed or absurd or something like that and Stephen King uh takes up this tactic in this book extensively but in in a weird kind of mirror of what you were saying about like the the Roth um uh, updike kind of thing does not seem to quite know why Vonnegut does it or like (laughs) he doesn't seem to understand that for Vonnegut like that's kind of a joke Right. He's like telling you little jokes or something or making kind of like a little incisive point. This is literally like uh, Dawes is walking through the mall and he sees a sign uh, outside like it's it's Christmas time. And he sees the sign saying that the mall Santa is on lunch break. And like we, we get to read the sign <laughs> saying the mall Santa is on lunch break. And that's it. Or like he'll look at his pack of cigarettes and it will be the name of the cigarettes, right? The name brand of the cigarettes or what have you. Um, so that's really weird. Uh, I also think actually the the bifurcated uh, uh, consciousness, the Fred and George thing uh, can feel very Vonnegutian in the sense that they're essentially doing kind of like a vaudeville routine in his head. 
Yeah, that's exactly the word I was looking for before earlier when I couldn't come up with it. Vaudeville <laughs> routine is, yeah, yeah, 100%. And, uh, I, but, you know, again, kind of doesn't under, doesn't seem to understand why you would do that, but it's just doing it. Um, the thing about this uh, that, as you're talking about Vonnegut, that makes me think of is like, whenever Stephen King is doing something that I would associate with like postmodernism, and by that I mean like postmodern literature and its kind of meta-reflective capability, it's uh, a special, you know, um, uh, fascination with pop culture, you know, all mm-hmm. these things that we associate with that um, kind of literary movement. He never seems to understand why he's doing it. Right. Mm. It's just because like he, he enjoys it. Right. Um, you know, Vonnegut is common commenting on almost every time. Right. When, when Vonnegut does these kind of weird like interstitial pieces of world where we get the text, it's almost always to be like to generate irony. Right. Mm-hmm. There's something weird going on with the reality of 1960s, 70s, 80s culture and then the way it's reflected back on itself. Right. It's kind of this weird simulacrum simulacrum relationship where there's no ground. You know, that, that that the media itself is, like, ungrounded in some weird way. And Vonnegut's using that all the time. Stephen King is just like, yeah, as you're saying, like, oh, yeah, this is a candy bar wrapper. Mm-hmm. It would say that. It would say it's delicious because they're good. Right. Um, <laughs> yeah, and with that in mind, um, it may seem like, uh, dear listener, that we're moving pretty rapidly. Uh, and I guess we are because there's not much more to talk about than what we've already said. But don't worry. We will discuss uh, some other details of this novel in our segments, beginning with My Favorite Kingism. So My Favorite Kingism is uh, the segment where we each pick out a a phrase, a sentence, uh, a paragraph that we think is kind of indicative of the style of Stephen King. Uh, Normally it's something we like. This time it's actually, for me at least, going to be something I don't like. Uh, mm-hmm. so this is, mine is, uh, from the scene where Dawes is at, he's at a New Year's Eve party. He gets invited to a, a sort of like old friend's New Year's Eve party after his wife has left him and he shows up and he takes some mescaline that, uh, the Olivia, the, the hitchhiking, uh, 21 year old that he picked up. Um, she, you know, stays with him for a little bit and then she moves on. She like goes to Vegas. Uh, she gives him some mescaline. And he takes it before this New Year's Eve party and he starts tripping and uh, he's talking to uh, just some woman he meets at the party. Uh, But as he's tripping, like he starts getting visuals. Her face was changing, seeming to become hooded and reptilian. Uh, Mary as cheap mystery movie police. Oh, wait, is this his wife? Did I miss that? Maybe. I, in the same conversation, he's also having, he's also talking to the woman I think he went to high school with. Right. Um, it, it kind of bounces back and forth. So oh, right, because he's it, tripping. It okay. could be. Yeah. I was going to say, yeah, so what's happened is he's met a person he's gone to high school with, and he keeps, like, mixing her up with his ex-wife, or current wife, because they're not officially divorced. Anyway, her face was changing, seeming to become hooded and reptilian. Mary as cheap mystery movie police detective, shining the light in the suspect's eyes. Come on, McGonagall, whichever way you want it, hard or soft. And then, worse still, she began to remind him uneasily of the H.P. Lovecraft stories he had read as a boy, the Cthulhu mythos stories, where perfectly normal human beings change changed into fishy crawling things at the urgings of the elder ones. So, uh, I, I, yeah. The the largest raspberry humanly possible on this one. (laughs) It's such a forced reference. 
Yes. Such a forced yeah. illusion. And um, a thing, I, I'm calling this a kingism because uh, I guess it's not unbelievable that George Dawes read Lovecraft when he was a kid, but we get a lot, like, George Dawes is a character who is surprisingly well-read, despite being a character who seems like he should not be that well-read. It's a very strange thing that, uh, you know, we have this 40-something, like, salt of the earth, same job out of high school, extremely, extremely working class kind of uh, dude who doesn't seem to have a lot of uh, sort of creative interests or pursuits or, or sort of anything like that. He also happens to have read, like, all of Stephen King's favorite authors, and he's constantly <laughs> like, this reminded him of H.P. Lovecraft. This reminded him of Kurt Vonnegut. This reminded him of Hemingway. And Hemingway is maybe, like, uh, more believable, but still, right? It's it's a, a Stephen King thing of, like, just having a character who has read too many of what are clearly the author's favorite things when the character and the author are also very clearly different people. Like, Stephen King was 26 when he wrote this book. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, when I read this, I was like, gee, like, thanks, Steve, right? It's like reading a comic book, right, where, where the author is, like, overly invested in their own stuff. Um, you know, I really associate this. The positive version of this is, like, a Curing uh, Gillen comic book, right? Mm -hmm. Like the, uh, what, Polygram, what's it called? Polyphone? I can't remember. I don't remember <laughs> the, either, but it's something like that, yeah. Yeah, uh, but but where like all the music is like deeply personal and and uh, of a very particular time and, and era. Mm -hmm. um, in the, in that case, it, it works, right? I think it makes for really interesting uh, comic book reading, but it does not make for an interesting novel about a man in his forties in the nineteen seventies. Mm -hmm. <laughs> well, I have a, I, I have a maybe a slightly more positive. I mean, it's more negative in a broad sense, but more positive in, in opinion. Uh, I don't have a page number for it because uh, I was reading this book before bed and I, I didn't mark page numbers. But there is a like whole chapter where he finally uh, kind of reconciles or delves into the memory of his child dying, mm -hmm. and he and he talks about this like walnut sized um, you know tumor that's like in the middle of of uh, you know in the middle of his child's brain, and he and he talks about he kind of goes back and forth. He's like. It's in the middle of the brain, so it's inoperable. And if it had been on the outside of the brain, we would have been able to do boom, boom, boom. But because it's here, and he, so he kind of plays out these implications of just the placement of a tumor on the brain. And it does this kind of like weird, I, I don't know, like, you know, this whole novel, as we've talked about, is very tightly attached to Dawes's kind of perceptive apparatus. Mm -hmm. And this is a place that feels a lot like the dead zone, actually. You know, mm -hmm. the camera of the novel is really moving around and kind of being much more meta-reflective than, uh, than Dawes is in any other part of the novel. Um, I don't know why that happens necessarily, <laughs> uh, but I found it really moving, actually. I was like, damn, this is the one place in this novel where you really get a sense of, like, this character can look into the past and into the present and see different options and uh, and understands how he got to the place that he's in, right? And it's from, it's from a trajectory of really deep pain. And this is after we've read lots and lots of, God, probably 100 pages at this point of like Dawes' life after he loses his job and his wife leaves him, which is he goes home and then he begins drinking at like 7 o'clock and then drinks until he passes out every single day. Mm -hmm. um, and so it's, it really is this kind of like, wow, like Stephen King, when, when he's doing it, he can really get into the, you know, the perceptive apparatus of this character and do weird little shifts with it that really kind of makes it work. 
Um, unfortunately, that can't be that he doesn't sustain that through this novel, and he never really goes back for it again. So, like the whole kind of um, I don't know, you know, middle class white man's revenge novel at the end never even remotely touches on that. Um, mm-hmm. You know, to to give you that kind of perspective on it, so it feels even weirder. It feels even more, I guess, like that that um, novel cover that I was talking about earlier of like. A man on a mission. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, except there is no mission. Other than, I guess, firebombing, um, uh, like, construction equipment. Yeah. He does do that. <laughs> and then he's very shocked because it doesn't do anything. Like, it delays the, the whole thing for, like, a couple of days. So I'm so glad we spent two-thirds of the novel working up to that. Yeah, he, like, he like sets a bunch of bobcats on fire, basically. And, like, a, a, you know, a couple, uh, like, a crane. He burns a crane. And then he's like, yes, I've done it. And he gets home and he like watches on the news and it's like, it will set production back by one month. And he's like, what? <laughs> Are you kidding? They can just get another crane? Mm-hmm. No way. <laughs> it's uh, like, yeah, bud. Sorry. Word. Sorry. The laundry business did not prepare you for this one. <laughs> oh, goodness. Um, uh, uh, the next segment is very similar. Uh, this is Bachman Turner Overshare. This is a unique segment to the Bachman novels, uh, because they tend to be bleaker and grosser than your mainline Stephen King. And so, uh, I don't know if you have one, Cameron, but we pick out. Oh, I do. Oh, great. Do. We, we may have the same one. I, I am. We eager... really might. I'm afraid we do. <laughs> I, I am almost, I think we might. I think we might. If, if that's the case, do you maybe want to go first? Uh, this is so disgusting to me, just like on a conceptual level that I thought about not bringing it up, but, uh, this wouldn't be just King things if we didn't, didn't do it. And it wouldn't be Bachman Turner overshare if we didn't do it. Yeah. I, I, sh- I should uh, explain more. It's like, because it's bleak, we just pick the grossest thing that we find personally gross. So that's why it's Bachman Turner overshare. Let's go camera. Yeah. Cause these Bachman books, he's just doing it right. Uh-huh. Like Stephen King is just unleashing something. Uh, that that doesn't get unleashed in his mainline novels until a little bit later. It it, it takes a lot of drug abuse, I think, to make it show up in the in the mainline novels. Mm-hmm. And I'm not saying that as a joke. That's a very serious thing. I think it really is. You know, uh, I mm-hmm. don't know. He just feels confident in the Bachman novels, not as confident in the King ones. But eventually, those two universes in his mind, almost like dueling voices. <laughs> Interesting. No, but you know, they kind of just become the same voice in the mid '80s for a little while. Um, but yeah, he is talking about that. My, I don't have a page number on this, but it's he is reflecting about his sexual experiences with his wife versus is her name Olivia, the, yes. the young woman. Uh huh. Is is this related to the one you're coming to, or is yes. this completely? Un- uh huh. And he says, "I'm so I I I deeply apologize for saying these words." Okay, dear listener. But he specifically says that Olivia is a better fit, quote-unquote, and says that her her vagina makes a audible popping noise uh-huh. when he pulls out. Uh-huh. That And when I read that, I thought, God damn it, Steve, what are you doing? <sighs> is that yours? Was that also yours? Yes, oh that one God. was mine. <laughs> oh, my God. It's one of the most just fucking gross things i've ever read in a novel and i was like steve why did you do this man like what is going on it's so specific and weird so specific so weird and guess what i i prepared a backup one because i expected this to happen (laughs) 
So here's my backup. Uh, okay. It comes very shortly before, and it is also about his penis. Um, so the the way that Olivia and Dawes end up sleeping together is that he he picks her up like as a hitchhiker. Um, eventually, he's like, because uh, it's like during a snowstorm or something. And he's like, come stay at my house mm-hmm. because whatever. And she's like, are you trying to sleep with me? And he's like, no. Uh, and then she makes him dinner. Because, uh, you know, that's what every 21-year-old hitchhiker wants to do is, like, make a, a full, like, roast dinner for uh, a 40-year-old man, if that's what she does. Uh, they yep. eat dinner. They sort of watch TV for a little bit. Uh, there's a lot about sort of the TV and how it has a remote control. Just by the way, if you want some deep, deep reflections <laughs> from 1973 on what a remote control for a TV is like, uh, this novel has that. Uh, and then she like basically she spends this entire thing thinking like, OK, come on, like, when are you going to put the moves on me? When are you going to sleep with me? Uh, and they she kind of like, you know, tries to get him to, to come to bed with her or whatever before uh, she she is going to bed. Uh, and he's like, no, 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 that's not what I want. And then she goes off on her own and he stays and sleeps on the couch and then eventually gets up in the night and goes into the bedroom and they sleep together anyway, which leads to what we just talked about. But yep. Before that, uh, he he gets. I I remember this too. He gets excited, um, and uh, he's very sort. You know, he he gets aroused. He gets an erection, uh, and that makes him uncomfortable. So he like stands up. She's already left the living room, and he kind of like stands up and sort of you know walks around and waits for his erection to go down, which it does. And then he falls asleep in front of the TV, and we are treated then to this beautiful line. A few minutes later, there was a stirring beneath the fly of his pants as his erection returned stealthily like a murderer revisiting the scene of an ancient crime. Steve, what are you doing? (laughs) What is... uh, You know, can you go back and read that thing about people calling him a a master of horror again? Can you just read that line? Him describing himself? Okay, so hold on. Um... Other people will hang tags on me like the horror meister, the schlockmeister, the fearmeister, the master of suspense, the master of horror. But I've never said what it is that I do, and I don't write letters complaining about those things because then it sounds like I'm trying to put on airs and make myself sound like something I'm not. Mm-hmm. Ah, the master of horror just uh, delivering delivering force in uh, the Blockman-Turner overshare segment. But yeah, unfortunately, these uh, these things will uh, continue happening Yeah, as, as, as the novels go. And it's unfortunate that the same mind who came up with the cool-ass name of Necromancer for a horse <laughs> <laughs> would also come up with uh, something so uh, disappointingly strange. It's like returning to the scene of an ancient crime, huh? It's like, that's mm-hmm. what? Okay. Yeah. <sighs> yeah. Yeah. What a metaphor. Yeah. Well, uh, I guess, uh, speaking of things that keep going, uh, I don't know. <laughs> great, great transition. Yeah, yeah, I love that. Great segue. I'm so good at podcasting. Uh, what in the Kingiverse is the segment where we note connections uh, between whatever we've just read and the broader uh, works and world of Stephen King? Uh, mm-hmm. I noticed at least two things. Uh, did you notice any that uh, I didn't write down in the notes? 
Mm-mm, I didn't notice any. I, I guess I noticed the uh, the second one that you have here, but I didn't notice Blue Ribbon Laundry, which is the first one. Um, where does that show up again? Well, Blue Ribbon Laundry is the name of the laundry service, which Dawes works for um, in uh, this novel. Uh, it's an industrial or sort of like commercial laundry service. Uh, this should sound familiar to you because uh, Stephen King himself worked in an industrial laundry. That is where this is coming from. Uh, hmm. It shows up very briefly in Carrie. Uh, and it shows up in The Mangler, where uh, the Mangler itself, the giant possessed demonic uh, laundry press, uh, is in Blue Ribbon Laundry. Huh. Which is not apparently this same Blue Ribbon Laundry. That one actually seems uh, vaguely like New Englandy in, in the kingy way. Uh, but yeah, no, he just like straight up reused the same name for the laundry service. Hmm. Just likes it. Yep, I guess so. Kind kind of uh, universal American, too. It is. You know, blue it is. ribbon laundry. The second connection that I noticed is a character by the name of Phil Drake, uh, who shows up in kind of the, the back half of this novel. Uh, he is someone who Dawes meets at that uh, party where he's, like, having a kind of weird bad trip. Uh, mm-hmm. And... <laughs> Phil Drake is a cool older dude who's like, you know, he he seems somehow familiar with the effects of various drugs and so on. And as Dawes is talking to him, he finds out that Drake runs like a, a, a like coffee shop again on like the wrong side of town uh, where he I I'm not really sure what he's doing at this coffee shop other than like he says that you know, burnt out hippies and like uh, unhoused people and stuff like come in and it's he's not like necessarily giving them shelter or anything, but they just like come into his coffee shop that he runs and are there. And sometimes I guess he arranges like little musical shows and things. They also uh, work there like. It, oh, it, that's got, right. Because he, he explains that the second time we meet him because it, it doesn't come up the first time, I don't, I don't think. But it's kind of got this vibe of like, you know, when you get out of prison where are you going to find a job? And like, mm-hmm. this is the kind of place where you're going to go, or, you know, you, you know, you're unhoused and you need to find a job. You mm-hmm. know, this is the kind of person who will give you that, um, which weirdly enough kind of gets remediated into the same kind of pseudo character story way later in some other Stephen King novels. Right. Um, so this is why I said that it's very interesting that this novel was basically being drafted like simultaneously with Salem's lot. Uh, Because we find out that Phil Drake, he's a very world-weary person, right? But very thoughtful. And he's not, uh, ethical is not the right word, but he has kind of a sense that the world is bad. And uh, he doesn't think he's necessarily going to win by being a moral person or an ethical person. But he is nevertheless going to kind of continue to do that in this uh, very secular way. Despite the fact that he used to be a priest, Uh, and he has a strangely, uh, mangled hand, right? He has, like, a a strange scar on one of his hands, which we never learn the origin of, uh, but we know, uh, Dawes, when he sees it, thinks it might have been, like, a burn or something, and we know that whatever happened with, uh, with Drake, he, you know, lost his faith as a priest, right? He, he sort of says multiple times, like, I'm just, I'm not a priest anymore. But yet, nevertheless, he continues to, uh, you know, run this kind of coffee shop and try to help people. He just doesn't seem to believe in God or anything like that. Uh, this is Father Callahan. 
Yeah. Like, yeah. like in everything but direct name. Yeah. Like Father Callahan, uh, you know, disgraced priest from Salem's lot. Uh, because he, he like he stopped being a priest because he he you know had his challenge of faith and then a, a vampire marked him. Uh, Father Callahan tries to go into the church and uh, because he's been marked by a vampire, it burns his hand. And so then he leaves and he goes off uh, to who knows where. Uh, and as we, we we don't want to talk too much about a book that's far 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 in our future, um, but as you said, Cameron, like the this exact kind of. Uh, orientation to the world like who is father callahan after he's left salem's lot um comes back up again in in kind of slightly different terms but it's it's just straight up like this is alternate universe like phil drake is alternate universe father callahan Mm -hmm. and i guess one additional thing here too uh that happens um that also will show up again in later stephen king books is that at one point dawes explicitly says I can't believe my life worked out this way. It's almost like I'm some character in a novel written by an evil god. <laughs> <laughs> and it's like, oh, yeah, okay. Well, we're seeing a little bit of some other Stephen King kind of metaverse ideas showing up here, too. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't. I didn't find that nearly as painful uh, as I did the Lovecraft reference, but it's pretty close. Like when a yeah. character is like, it's like I'm being tortured by some sort of entity who's controlling my life. I'm like, <laughs> all right, all right, Great. calm down, Steve. Huh. <laughs> <laughs> Go write The Shining. <laughs> <laughs> oh, and now it's time for our last segment, uh, Uncle Stevie's Mixtape, the segment where we talk through and review the various songs and music that were mentioned in, in the novel. Uh, the first one is yours, Cameron, if you want to talk about it. Yeah, I didn't, uh, as I was telling you before we did this recording, other than some uh, songs later, actually the songs that happened at the very end of the book, I didn't catch any of these while reading, so I had to, very quickly before we began uh, um, uh, recording, listen to them. One of them is Al Stewart's On the Border, which is part of an album called Year of the Cat. I want to tell you right now, listeners, you should just Google Al Stewart Year of the Cat and look at the cover, because it's awesome. (laughs) <laughs> it's like some Lisa Frank MC Escher stuff going on. There's like a like I don't know. Just look at it. You'll you'll enjoy it. But this song is good. It's like a little bit of a jaunty tune. Um got a little bit like a techno like an, it's night from 1976 I think, so it's a little bit earlier than uh, a lot of electronic music, but it's got a little bit of like a jaunty electronic thing going on. Uh I'm going to give it 5 stars. It's great. Mm. Uh the next song is Dirty Water by the Standells. This is a, uh, I took this one because I am, of the two of us, I'm the one who lives closest to Boston. This is a song about Boston. It's a famous Boston song. It's often played at the end of Boston sporting events. Um, you know, this is this is King letting a little bit of the New England through in this novel that I think is set in Wisconsin. Mm-hmm. Uh, this, the, this song, I it's one star. I hate it. Uh, it's about like... It's sort of ironic, right? It's talking. It's it's a song that's like, ah, oh, Boston, you're my home. Like that's the the kind of famous um, chorus from it. But it's called "Dirty Water" because it's about the Charles River, which was like famously like filthy polluted. And the song is also about. It talks about how like there are so many women's colleges and uh, they all have curfews. And doesn't that suck? Uh, and the song is just not <laughs> half as funny as it thinks it is. Uh, and what a I, weirdly specific thing to put in a song. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I I do not like it. One star. Hmm. Uh, I got Rolling Stones' uh, Gimme Shelter. It's good. All-time banger. 
yeah. four stars. How how apposite to have a song give me shelter in a book about a man trying to save his house. Really makes you think. And who ultimately destroys it. Yeah, yeah. The next song uh, is Careless Love, which is a traditional song. It's kind of a, a bluegrass folk song. Uh, no artist is given as performing it. I think it's just like mentioned as being overheard on the radio or something. Uh, so hmm. I looked for recordings that would have been released close to like 1973, 1974 when the novel takes place. Uh, and I found one by the Virginia Mountain Boys, which I did not like that much. I give that two stars, but here's the thing. There are versions of this song that I do really like, and I uh, would give those, like, four stars. So, uh, kind of a split review here. Uh, I got Rolling Stone's Midnight Rambler. I listened to about ten seconds of this, and uh, then clicked to the middle of it and listened to another ten seconds. One star. It's terrible. Garbage. Mm -hmm. Uh, the next song for me to review is The Rolling Stone's. Uh, Monkey Man. Uh, you'll notice that we've reviewed multiple Rolling Stones <laughs> songs at this point. Uh, that is because in the back third of this novel, uh, Dawes listens to the Rolling Stones album Let It Bleed on repeat. So just suddenly the 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 book is like filled with little references to the Rolling Stones. And also this is an extremely like Stephen Kingy kind of thing where this guy in his 40s in the 70s is getting really into the new Rolling Stones album. Because <laughs> uh, there's actually a specific line where Dawes is like reflecting on the fact that he's listening to this music and he's like, this is actually pretty good. This young person music. Um, <laughs> so anyway. Monkey Man uh, from Let It Bleed. Uh, I'm going to give this two stars because it's got, you know, a good Rolling Stones sound, but I hate the chorus. Like, it's like just one of the not that the Rolling Stones are, you know, famous for their the, the poetry of their lyrics and uh, how much sense they make. Uh, but the chorus to this song is like, I'm glad or it's like I'm a monkey man and I'm glad you're a monkey lady, too. Which is just stupid. I don't know. No, thanks. No, I'm good. what? No. Ugh. <laughs> yeah, okay, so I just looked this up. Because you saying that made me think, this is, you know, obviously this is another moment of Stephen King just kind of self-inserting into, like, a place where it doesn't belong. But uh, Dawes would have been born in, like, 1930. Mm-hmm. So the music of his youth, and, and I'll say youth of young adulthood, when he's 20 years old, that's somewhere around 1950, right? Mm -hmm. uh, here's people in the top 10 for 1950. Nat King Cole, Gary and Bing Crosby, <laughs> <laughs> Sammy Kay, right? Like the uh, uh, Gordon Jenkins and the Weavers had the number one for the year, right? Uh -huh. Like, uh, like the, <laughs> there's no way this person would have enjoyed the Rolling Stones. Well, he does but, when he is uh, deeply depressed, has given up all earthly connections and is prepared to blow up his house. I guess that's the, the moral. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, it, everyone at the end of their rope will eventually like the Rolling Stones. And that's the only way you can like them as a band. <laughs> um, uh, got, well, I get I get a last one. Mm -hmm. um, uh, the Rolling Stones can't always get what you want. Uh, it's pretty good. It's way too long. Mm -hmm. But it does have that great moment where like the uh, like the drums kick in. He's like, you get what you need. Mm -hmm. And it's, you know, it's every in every commercial between 1995 and 2005. Mm-hmm. Good time for commercials. Good time for selling out if you were a, like a dad rock band. Yes. But uh, but yeah, uh, I don't know, like three stars, four stars. It's in there. It's pretty good. Yeah, well, that's cool. 
Uh, and that really kind of ties everything up. Uh, if you are interested in learning more about what we do at Range Touch, aside from Just King Things, uh, you can follow us on Twitter at Range Touch. You can also check us out on YouTube, youtube.com slash Range Touch. That's where we post uh, videos from Let's Plays, uh, videos for our other show, Too Much Future, where Cameron and I play through the Fallout games. Uh, you can also uh, follow the Twitter to get updates on shows like Game Study Study Buddies, where we read books of academic game studies. And if you are interested in any of this stuff or appreciate any of this incredible free content, uh, you should back us on Patreon, patreon.com slash range touch. And if you back us there right now, Right now, dear listener, you will get access to our Just King Things bonus episodes, uh, which is the companion show to this show where Cameron and I watch a movie uh, that is a Stephen King movie, usually based on whatever it is we have just read. You will have a whole archive of these things to go through and you will have the latest episode, which uh, because road work, unfortunately, question mark, does not have any sort of film adaptation associated with it. Uh, we will be watching, uh, we have not watched it yet, uh, have not discussed it, I'm still really excited to hear what Cameron has to say, uh, 1992's Sleepwalkers, uh, King's first original screenplay and his first collaboration, uh, with, a uh, longtime future collaborator, Mick Garris, uh, and it's a, it's a personal favorite of mine, and I think that that episode, that bonus-ode is going to be a very good bonus-ode, so, uh, jet on over to patreon.com slash range touch. So to get people hype here, I've just received it this very day, the Sleepwalker, Stephen King's, I'm sorry, I'm so sorry, Stephen King's Sleepwalkers Collector's Edition Blu-ray, mm. okay, I've got it in my hands, special features. New audio commentary with director Mick Garris and actors Madchen Amick and Brian Krause. Yes! 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 yes Mick Garris commentary. New interviews with Mick Garris, uh, actors Alice Krieg and Brian Krause, and special makeup effects creator Tony Gardner. Uh, new behind-the-scenes footage, a theatrical trailer, a TV spot, and a still gallery. I'm probably not going to look at the whole still gallery, but I will watch all those other features to make sure that we know the, as much as we can when we get to actually watching or talking about Sleepwalkers in the bonus episode. So if you want to hear me relate to you, what Mick <laughs> Garris has to say, much like I do in all the other bonus notes, this is going to be the episode to listen to. Yeah, and uh, we'll get to see what does it look like when Stephen King is creating a, an original story for the screen. How does horror work? How does Stephen King's brand of horror work in that context. Uh, and I think that, you know, it will greatly, our, our appreciation of Sleepwalkers, mine is already considerable, um, will be deepened by next month's book uh, when we return for our mainline episode and we discuss 1981's, this is a big one, Dan's Macabre, King's first nonfiction book about uh, his thoughts on the horror genre and how it works and sort of, uh, you know, what the point of it is and a little bit of memoir, a little bit of this and that. It's a, it's an interesting book. I've read it a couple of times uh, and I'm, you know, kind of looking forward to being able to talk about something a little bit different uh, in this context. Yeah, it's going to be exciting. I haven't read this book in a very long time. I think the last time I read it, I can remember where I was when I read it. So I would say it was probably 2007 hmm. is what is my guess. It's the last time I read this book. So it's been a long time. Yeah, that would be the same for me because I used it in a, in a paper I wrote in undergrad. So that would have been about the same time. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, uh, Stephen King's Dance Macabre, uh, huge for undergraduate papers. Yes, very much so, I would say. <laughs> like, it, it is, right? It's a source. It's uh, approachable. Mm-hmm. He's got ideas in there that you can pull out and talk about. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. It's uh, in a long tradition of horror writers writing novel or writing nonfiction about why their horror is good horror. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, from, from Edgar Allan Poe to H.P. Lovecraft all the way to Stephen King. <laughs> Uh, And who knows what film will accompany that. We will decide in the intervening several weeks and we'll update you when the time is appropriate. Until next time, Cameron, uh, you want to tell them why we're doing this? (sighs) Well, you know, occasionally we do things for the world. Uh, You know, we, um, uh, you know, produce goods, wheat, for example. Uh, We make bread. Um, Sometimes we make entertainment. You know, all of these, of course, for the world. But sometimes, uh, in our deepest, darkest moments, uh, when when light seems the furthest from our, our moment, in that moment, we do it for Steve. <laughs>